0: always loved the Barney Frank line that if, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Having been in enough of those meetings, it's true. And that's why I fight so hard to make sure everybody has, has a chair. And, and you know sometimes you have to share the seat with somebody because there's not enough chairs. So you scoot over and let somebody else sit on the other half. But you have to make sure that everyone is at that table. Hello.
1: This is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Ray Buckley is the chair of the New Hampshire Democratic Party. He's also served as president of the Association of State Democratic Chairs and as vice chair of the Democratic National Committee, not to mention the city Democratic chair for Manchester, New Hampshire. Ray also served eight terms in the New Hampshire House of Representatives and is frequently a delegate to the Democratic National Conventions. He's been in the middle of local, state and national politics for many decades. So we had a lot to talk about. You should listen. So first, my sponsor then, my interview with Ray Buckley of the New Hampshire Democratic Party.
0: Check out the large, detailed, and high quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount.
1: Ray, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Sure. I'm Ray Buckley, chair of the New Hampshire Democratic Party. That's about the best way to describe me.
1: <laughs> Where did you grow up, Ray?
0: Well, it's a longer story than you can imagine, but I was uh, born in Keene. I've had ancestors in Cheshire County since the early 1700s, which is the Vermont, Massachusetts corner of the, the state of New Hampshire. Lived in that area till I was three. We went out to Detroit, Michigan for a couple of years, which I will tell the story and why that's important to know. Came back. So we moved around the state of New Hampshire, but pretty much the central part of New Hampshire from age uh, eight to uh, today.
1: What did your parents do?
0: My father's profession is a welder, though he held different jobs when welding wasn't a year-round enterprise in the 60s. My mother has done just about every imaginable job she's been a school bus driver factory worker ran a a daycare center she has had a very
1: interesting life as they both have were you a person that went off to college
0: no um my parents were very young when um i came into this world they were in their mid-teens. I had another sister and then they divorced and got remarried uh, very quickly and um, I ended up being the oldest of a combined family of nine. Very lower working class is the nice way of saying poor. There just wasn't even money to even apply, which uh, in my uh, world, Nobody had ever gone to college, and I was actually the first of uh, folks to graduate from high school. So, what I now know uh, is that you know, going to college is actually a very important thing. But I had no role model that had ever gone to college or was pushing me to go to college, and I had a lot of anxieties about it. I love school though, I mean, going to classes would have been my favorite. I, I did have. Some anxiety just being gay in the mid '70s and going off to college and having a roommate. I, I did have some safety fears, how that would work out.
1: I saw that you were an intern for the New Hampshire Party in 1977.
0: I graduated high school in '77, so it was while I was still a senior in high school. There was a special election uh, for state representative, and I happened to show up in a meeting, and uh, they asked. The For volunteers. And so I uh, was able to come in and make phone calls, get out the vote calls and ID calls for for the candidate for special election. Then I uh, spent the summer with them after I graduated high school and did all sorts of stuff. That was my education. I was so fortunate. Back then, the state party was a two-person operation. The chair was the acting executive director at the same time. She was a larger-than-life person with an absolute brilliant mind. Lessons that she taught me all those years ago, I use every single day still. So she was the first woman ever actually elected as state party chair here in New Hampshire, Joanne Simons. Uh, she was born and raised in Brooklyn. She was an educator by profession, and as was her husband, but she was bold and strong and um, just fearless. Her confidence was endless. And uh, it really taught me that you can be like that. Just sitting uh, we had sort of an open concept office since we were so small. So I got to hear her phone calls and I saw how she talked sweet to some people and not so sweet to other people. So many of those things that I never experienced as a child. And so I just learned that you have to use different styles with different people to get what, what you want from them. And she was always a champion. She was actually the first adult person that, well, I'll tell the story if you want. Um, she got a phone call from a friend of hers. She she had been a leader in the Udall campaign, and there was this young guy that was an employee of the Udal campaign who was murdered in a um, gay – apparently in the 70s, Going the Iwo Jima monument was a uh, gay meeting place, and he was murdered there, and he was – like 22, 23, he'd been a college kid. I know that she got the call from somebody from Washington. That's all I knew. She started crying and she was sobbing. And then she came in and she gave me a hug and she goes, I want you to promise me that you'll always be safe. And that was the first person on earth that ever acknowledged that I was gay. And that was so huge uh, for me that because I literally didn't didn't know of another gay person in the state of New Hampshire at the time. There was no internet.
1: Had you told her?
0: She knew. And it was given with love. When I spoke at her memorial service when she died, I said, changed my world.
1: Yeah, I, I can see how moving that would be. You must have had some kind of political bug to choose that as a job. Where, where did that come from? it's not a job, it's a life. (laughs) (laughs) My parents were
0: teenagers. Both of their parents had divorce. Both came from mixed families of multiple kids from different parents. Both experienced hardships and cruelties that are unimaginable. Virtually anything that you can imagine bad that could happen to a child happened to one of them, and sometimes both of them. But they found each other, and Got married, and but they were teenagers and had no. They didn't graduate high school, obviously, very limited skills. But so my dad uh, learned how to weld, like his father and his older brothers. But jobs were sparse. But he got a, a call from a friend that that was had a big job out in Detroit, Michigan. But we packed up the opal that we had, everything that they had, and we drove out. And I remember arriving and staying with that family. And we did eventually find an apartment, and I went to Ella Fitzgerald Elementary School for kindergarten and first grade. It was a very mixed neighborhood and world that I lived in. We had a lot of immigrants, uh, a lot of African-American kids, a lot of lower-end white kids, and nobody had ever even wildly referenced that there was a difference between a kid that had blonde hair and a kid that had darker skin. The idea that that there were people were treated differently was uh, not something I had had ever entered my brain. And so then when we came back to New Hampshire, you couldn't really find stuff out there. And Apparently, my, you know, my mother was homesick at the time. So we came back, and you know, we were really hard times. We were living actually in the basement of an elderly folks. Mm-hmm. And, but in second grade, in February of 1967, um, my teacher, Sandra Whippy, I can tell you exactly where I was sitting in that room. Because in February 1967, she made everything that she was teaching us in second grade about Abraham Lincoln because of Lincoln's birthday. And that's when I heard about slavery. And I've never been the same since. That so stunned me that the great-grandparents of my friends that I left in Detroit were owned and 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 abused and just dehumanized but having the, a second grade information level of but somebody stood up and did something about it. that was my message of what Abraham Lincoln did that you know he ended up giving his life, To be able to end slavery though obviously we know a lot more it's a lot more complicated and so i said there is nothing better that you can do in life than to make sure that bad things don't happen to people and so i saw being involved because abraham lincoln was elected to office so i connected politics to being able to help people and so i started volunteering the very next year and i made my parents register to vote
1: (laughs) i noticed that your first jobs are with campaigns in new hampshire Tell me about that stretch of your life before you kind of find a home in the party.
0: I started, you know, volunteering and being involved, and and uh, there wasn't a lot of you know, 13, 14, 15 year olds that kind of acted like they were old time operative, <laughs> and so I got to be known by everybody very early on. In early nineteen seventy five, uh, I decided I was going to support Jimmy Carter for president, and that just happened to be a year where I met. An enormous number of people that are major players or ha- were uh, major players in amateur politics. Former Governor Lynch was the executive director of the party. Bill Shaheen, the husband of, of Senator Shaheen, uh, was the chair of the Carter campaign. We had weekly meetings of the 34 steering committee member, which I, at 15, was one of the 34 people. So getting to know Billy and Jeannie as, as people is as, uh, at 15 and 16. Congressman Custer, you know, I met that year Blowing up balloons with her. She was a student at Dartmouth. And so it really was about me being introduced in for the chaos that was my life um, in, in every aspect, you know, uh, still struggling at that point. Are gay people allowed to be in politics, um, uh, on and on and on. My family kind of being in chaos and, you know, more kids were arriving. (laughs) We were always, you know, scrimping. We went to Salvation Army to get clothes. We didn't go to a store, things like that. So I felt a sense of calmness uh, and a a sense of family and belonging to the folks in politics. Um, And they very much embraced me and they became my... Uh, family in, in a way with relationships that have lasted. Uh, in fact, the the woman, the first woman that I met in the Carter campaign, she was at that time only 19, uh, just passed away two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And we have been best of friends all those 47 years. And it was just, I'm a 15-year-old kid wandering into the Carter headquarters and she just happened to be sitting at the desk. We became friends and it's just a, a remarkable life that we, an adventure that the two of us had over the, all these years, along with all sorts of other people. So it just gave me
1: a, a world. What were you doing in the Carter Kennedy primary in 1980? Uh, Carter won that pretty handily, but. What were you up to during that time?
0: I left working for the state party. Uh, I was had been a staff person in the state party up until uh, late September, early October of '79, because I knew I was wanted to be involved in reelecting the president. And if you work for the state party, you're not allowed to be involved in the primary, and so I was hired to work in the house. Uh, minority of the House Democratic office in the legislature. Uh, So with zero education uh, and at 19 years old, about to turn 20, you know, there I was sitting working with legislators and they're asking me for advice. But I always wore a tie, always wore a dress shirt, a little taller uh, than a lot of folks. And so people just presumed I was older and 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 uh, wiser than I was. <laughs> Ironically, uh, the person who uh, created the draft Kennedy movement and was a huge uh, supporter of Ted Kennedy's was Joanne Simons. She actually left being state chair to do the draft Kennedy uh, campaign.
1: How about the Hart Mondale race? four years later, which I was from Colorado, so I was rooting for Hart. Um, And that was a big upset for him in that primary.
0: A lot of lessons um, that were learned in that primary. Uh, Not everyone um, has learned those lessons that were taught, Uh, but it was an interesting primary. There was a lot more candidates running than I think people remember. They were some pretty credible candidates: Alan Cranston and Hollings and Askew. Uh, McGovern got back in. I mean, there was there was quite a few people, uh, the uh, Jesse Jackson that were running, and my friend Kathy, that I'd met at the Carter campaign, was the deputy state director for Mondale, and Jean Shaheen was the director for Gary Hart. So. While I, you know, voted for Mondale and uh, supported him, I didn't have any animosity towards Gary Hart in any way. Um, and my dad actually ended up voting for Hart because two college kids knocked on the door of the primary day, and it was a blizzard day here, yeah. and he he was so impressed that these two college students with snow piling up on their hats, had marched through that deep snow to knock on the door. He goes, well, anyone that can inspire two teenagers to go out there and knock on doors uh, deserves my vote, even though, obviously, he was, it, it, it was um, you know, a union employee, kind of the typical Mondale voter, but ended up voting for Hart just because of that uh, activity on on uh, Primer Day.
1: What are your recollections from the 88 presidential
0: Mike Tukakis was the Democratic nominee for lieutenant governor in 1970. Uh, Between 1970 and and 74, he had a show on—I believe it was Saturday night, might have been Friday night—on the local Boston PBS station, uh, where it was a talk show. And of course, at 11 and 12, why would I not be watching this? Right? I was so impressed um, with—I was so impressed with. uh, That I was like, you know, I hope he runs for governor, and you know, then when he ran for governor, got elected, and so I got to meet him while he was governor. I said, "You ever run for president? I want to work for you." And uh, lo and behold, I was indeed his first New Hampshire hire for his campaign in the spring of '87. The general election was soul crushing because I really thought that he was such a phenomenally good person that. Would have made such a transformational change after Reagan. How the country, how the government dealt with people. And, you know, leaving Atlanta with a 19 point lead, I was absolutely convinced we were on our way. And I was just so proud. of The whole convention which was just uh, such an experience. And then it just, due to Willie Horton and a whole mess of other issues, it went away. I promised myself then that, that was going to be the last time I cried in politics that that i can't take it so personal that it was like a death but that's really what it felt like on election night that really really hurt me
1: it doesn't seem like the best person always wins does it correct i think it's worth going through a few more of these uh 92 what were you thinking back then
0: i was Uh, working for the state party. I was the political director, then the executive director. Uh, So I get, I got to arrange the first trip of each of the people uh, thinking about running for president. And we usually, and we still do, we'll organize uh, a two day trip for anyone that's considering, where we get them to meet with uh, elected officials, local officials, labor officials, the media, give them a tour, a flavor of the safe. And so that was great. Great fun getting to know all of them. Bush was, was so high up in the polls. He was you know, popular.
1: I think at one
0: point he hit 91% approval. Right
1: after the first Iraq war. Yeah.
0: yeah. It was just uh, so that nobody was giving us any uh, hope that we were going to be successful, but I could just feel there was something moving and changing. Witnessing Clinton, uh, and remember the, the because nobody believed that we were going to beat Bush, all the campaigns started very late. Clinton didn't announce; it. I think it was mid-October of '91. For a while, it was really Paul Songus was the only candidate. Then it was Songus and Harkin, and then you know Kerry came along and and a few others, but um, it wasn't like a year and a half ahead of the primary people were out there organizing for them. So we hosted a midterm convention to to essentially showcase our presidential candidates. It was on C-SPAN, still on their C-SPAN library with all the candidates. And we ended up attracting uh, over a thousand folks to come. And a lot of people uh, say that the speech by Bill Clinton that day was what uh, convinced them to support Clinton. It was a real grassroots, roots-driven operation. I will tell you one story that's kind of... So, uh, uh, my birthday's in November, and uh, I had run for local uh, Alderman or City Council and when you get elected suddenly you get all these contributions from people that wouldn't return your calls beforehand so i had a thousand dollars that had shown up and i said well i'd like to do a thank you party for everyone that kind of had helped me go door to door and supported me and put up signs so so i invited all sorts of folks from my ward uh, about nine people but it was just a, maybe 50 people were going to be there and the day of it around it's like at six o'clock or so. And I get a call. Is it okay if Governor Clinton swings by your your birthday party? Sure. I don't care. <laughs> you know. And so he comes and this tells you about Bill Clinton, which is mind-blowing. So you know, we let him get up and speak and give his little remarks to the crowd. And he says, All right, in two years, I'm gonna invite you to my birthday party at the White House. And like everyone clapped and everything. I forgot all about it. Yes, I attended his White House birthday party two years later. He remembered that. Now, (laughs) how that mind is able to have all that sort of memories and information, and it's just mind blowing how brilliant of a a mind that he has that he could have, that he could say, hey, Back in, in November of ninety one, I promised you know Ray Buckley that I'd invite him to, to my birthday party, so make sure you reach out to him. What are those stories that you it really shows you that he really was as smart as people uh referred to him
1: as I mean wasn't that the comeback kid after the Jennifer Flowers? Revelations. He worked his
0: butt off in New Hampshire, uh, around the clock and he earned every vote that he got. There was he wasn't given a single vote in the state of New Hampshire. Bill Clinton went out there and earned it. Uh he he was at, you know, Dunkin' Donuts or any other twenty-four hour store, you know, three o'clock in the morning. Hey, I'm Bill Clinton. I mean, he literally personally met enough people to have had an impact in, in, in the result. Uh, a lot of national reporters had just completely written him off, but he had a uh, great campaign, had great uh, supporters, and he was absolutely determined that he was, he was going to be the next president, and his will uh, made it happen.
1: How had the state party changed? from you being an intern in a two-person operation to around then in in like 92-ish when you're now running it? So when
0: I was 16, the New Hampshire Republican Party had a fundraiser in Manchester. I think like 1,000 people. It was $100 a person, so they raised $100,000 in 1976. The guest speaker was Senator Warner and his then wife, Elizabeth Taylor.
1: John Warner from Virginia, yeah.
0: Exactly. And I was so jealous that I made a promise to myself at 16 that someday I was going to be the state party chair and I was going to have the largest political fundraiser in New Hampshire history. And maybe 10 months after my election as chair, I indeed had a uh, a fundraising event that had 3,600 people at. And um, in each presidential cycle, I try to make it a little larger, a little larger to make sure I always will have that record. But not sure there are a lot of 16-year-olds making promises to themselves about having a more successful event than the the other political party. Um, The party back then uh, uh, is not recognizable to now. We had nothing to give the candidates. Somebody could come in and say, hey, I'm thinking about running for governor. And the chair would go, good luck. There was nothing we could give. Now we have probably the best voter file in America loaded with information that they have access to. We have... Uh, staff that can provide them training on uh, how to use you know the voter file we have a phenomenal communication staff we have a finance staff we have all the staff that builds this organization that even in a primary they get so much support that it's really night and day versus uh, what it was like 40 years ago Uh, and i'm extraordinarily proud of that now When I was executive director for those years, there were stretches where I was the only employee (laughs) for the party, and now we have a base staff of 14, and we're in a building versus renting a two-room office suite, and uh, we've been winning elections.
1: When I was a grad student at MIT, I was taking a class in presidential elections. It was 96, and I came up to watch political parades and uh, campaigning, kind of very traditional campaigning, torchlight parades in New Hampshire. It was like the t- Lamar Alexander and Dole, and
0: as you remember, you know, uh, Clinton actually had uh, a full operation in the primary, even though he was unopposed. And it, as I left as executive director to work on the Clinton reelect, uh, because up until then, every incumbent Democrat had been challenged in New Hampshire. Harry Truman. Johnson, Carter, and each one of them ended up either not running or being defeated when they got challenged. So we were determined that Clinton would not be challenged, and so we worked very, very hard to solidify the support around Clinton for for the re-elected. We ran full operation with op- regional, local offices and staff, and the whole the whole thing happened. And he came up multiple times for right up until primary day. And um, we did a similar thing for, for Obama in uh, 2011.
1: New Hampshire, the electorate is kind of notoriously open to challengers. It, it took work, I suspect, to make sure that things like that would happen because they were open to the Buchanans and the McCarthy against Johnson or Hart against Mondale or whatever. Over and over, we've seen that pattern. Yeah. Buttigieg. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yep. Yeah.
0: Um, and the the fact that, you know, Bernie Sanders was able to win um, New Hampshire twice is pretty phenomenal uh, when, you know, the national establishment weren't, wasn't very favorable to him. But we made sure there was a level playing field. There was even talk by our then secretary of state that Bernie wouldn't qualify to be on the ballot because he wasn't a registered Democrat. And. By saying that publicly, then, of course, somebody then did challenge his ability to be on the ballot. And as state chair, I I went to the ballot law commission and uh, said that, you know, that we recognize Bernie Sanders as a Democratic candidate and that he should appear on the ballot. Even after that hearing, there was still some question whether what the secretary of state at that time was going to do. And so I escorted Bernie Sanders into the secretary of state's office when he filed to make sure that it was accepted, Bernie handed it to, to Bill. And I said, are we all set? Is this it? And he goes, sure, sure. But I wanted to make sure while all the cameras were there that he was confirming that Bernie uh, indeed was was going to be on the ballot. That was entirely because that was the fair thing to do. And that's that's what we really have always been able to do very well here in New Hampshire, and it allows uh, challengers, as you saw, I left working for the state party to even work for Clinton Gore. It wasn't the party, it was, um, it was the, the campaign. And, um, you know, you look at how close Bill Bradley came to Al Gore. I mean, you can go on and on uh, through the decades. And So New Hampshire is always ripe for an upset, somebody that the establishment hasn't deemed their choice.
1: If you had to point to a thing or two that you did as chair that were most important and lasting contributions, what would you put on that list?
0: It's hard for me not to choke up when I answer this question. Others have asked it just like, what is is the one thing that you're most proud of in all these years? In 2016, Maggie Hassan was elected to the U.S. Senate by 1,017 votes. So arguably, any volunteer can claim credit for her election. If she had not defeated Kelly Ayotte, Obamacare would have been repealed. That's 28 million Americans would have lost their health care. And not wasn't just her vote, just 28 million. That impacted their entire family. That impacted their employer. That... Em- Impacted every aspect of their life of having that health care. And I cannot imagine accomplishing anything greater than being part of the effort that made sure that 28 million people had health care. If I, nothing else happens in my life, I feel I succeeded.
1: You're part of so many things that you can see through that lens of meaningfulness. It's got to be the kind of career that you can look back on with, with a great deal of pride.
0: The massive change in our culture, in our population, in the country of the way fe- people feel and treat LGBTQ uh, members um, is so dramatically different. And to have been on uh, the front line, when I was first elected to the, to the legislature, I was 26 and then Governor Sunil signed a law that prohibited uh, anyone who was perceived to be homosexual, and this is the law, perceived to be homosexual, from adopting, serving as a foster care, or having custody of any children. As you can imagine, at 26, I still had minor siblings. And as the oldest, I was almost always the third parent anyways. And the idea that by state law, it was illegal for me, if something had happened to my father and stepmother, and i had, they had three daughters that were minors. It was against the law for me to have custody of my sisters and to move into their home and take care of my sisters. And that was so devastating because it's the first time in my life I've been told that I wasn't worthy of caring for my family. And then they defeated me on it because I obviously uh, was very upset with it. And then they said, oh, all Ray Buckley cares about his homosexual agenda. I was able to come back the next, the next election. But when Jean Chane was elected governor, I put in the bill that repealed that law. My dad was went to the signing, you know, and talked and talked about how important it is that families should be able to take care of families and the government shouldn't be telling people that they can't. Last June I was at the uh, pride flag raising in Manchester, Mayor Joyce Craig was raising the flag. And this woman came over to me. And she goes, you're Ray Buckley, right? And I'm standing in the back. I said, yeah. She said, I want to thank you for my life. I said, what? She goes, because of your work on marriage equality, I was able to get married to my wife. And we were, even before we were able to get married, we were able to adopt our daughter. And she's now graduating high school. And because of you, you know, we've had this entire family. And I'd never met this woman. I didn't know who it was. But it certainly uh, it came out of the blue. And it just, you know, there were a lot of tough times uh, being gay in New Hampshire. It was not, it was way before hate crimes had a name for it, but it was, it was bad. And the success, the fact that we have three trans members of the legislature in New Hampshire. It just makes me so happy, and that I think we have 13 openly LGBTQ members of the House. We, yeah, they're serving as mayors, and uh, congressmen, city council, school boards—just uh, hundreds of positions where there was no out people uh, when I was a candidate. And in fact, the first openly gay person that I had ever heard of was Harvey Milk, and then within a year was murdered. And it scared the crap out of a lot of us that, like, wow, if you come out, if you're open about being gay, are you going to get murdered? I mean, there was a real fear uh, at that time. And then the whole disaster of AIDS, wiping out friend after friend after friend after friend, after friend um, was uh, another guy about my age that's involved in politics. And it's about 20 years ago we were talking about something. He says, you know, Ray, we have a special burden. Because for all those who died, we have to live for them. And so every once in a while, when you know you kind of want to like give up or whatever, you just realize I was given by grace of whomever uh, the opportunity to survive when you know so many thousands were taken so quickly.
1: You spent quite a lot of time running the ASDC, the Association of State Democratic Chairs. Tell me a little bit about that organization and what that role meant to you and what kind of things you did there.
0: I believe in grassroots politics. I believe in the power of the volunteer talking to their neighbor. It's been proven so many times it's so much more important than a television ad or uh, a, a, a piece of mail or anything. And, but because consultants don't make money off from volunteers, Uh, they're not considered as important in in politics as as it should be, even though that's truly the winning uh, way. And it frustrates me uh, that because of that change, parties for a couple decades were largely ignored and disregarded because the candidates could then, if they raise enough money, can hire canvassers, can hire phone banks, can do mail without having volunteers having to address them and sort them and put them in the mail. You could hire everybody to do everything in the campaign, so you didn't need the grassroots activists. So there there was this atrophy. Uh, I I tell a story about in 2004 when I uh, looked at the coordinated campaign plan that, that was kind of cookie-cutter plan sent around the country and the mention of a local chair was on page 64. That was the first time they mentioned that there was somebody in that community of value. So I became sort of a minister of grassroots organizing. Uh, I was part of the meeting that we uh, came up with the concept of the 50-state of strategy and where we voted that we would all 56 uh, of the states, along including the territories, would band together. We were all going to vote together as one uh, to elect the next chair in exchange for support of, of funding the 50-state strategy. And that's how Howard Dean uh, was elected chair. And he transformed how parties operated and uh, really brought a whole generation of people into about party organizing and Still uh, a little disappointed that it was cut away during you know the years of the administration. And we've been fighting to restore it to that uh, level since then. Um, but we were on the path of really empowering the local volunteer, the local leader uh, into knowing what they have to do and, and giving them the tools that they need to be successful. So I felt being uh, president of ASCC would give me a platform of being able to show other state parties in a in a way uh, of what we were doing here in New Hampshire, and about going back down into the local uh, communities and starting, we the vast majority of our towns didn't even have chairs, but it, that's the way it was across the country. There were states that had multiple counties without even a chair in it uh the idea of volunteers going door to door was it was a concept they that that generation at that point had never even heard of uh because it so been swept away by these consultants and the big money people of, of washington which i have um, no use for but uh Really being able to travel the country to go to every state party, speak to their state committee meetings or the conventions, or uh, provide the training. Um, one of the things that I realized is that at the, the, that point the Democratic Party didn't have a training program, and so the DNC didn't, and nobody did, and how to try. And so we created uh, what's the train the trainer, meaning train local committees to. Uh, then reach out to volunteers themselves, and that program is still going on. So it was it was really important to empower, support, uh, and build the local part, the state parties, to then be able to build the local parties.
1: Well, I heard your name a lot. Was I had was running a company called NGP Software uh, that did uh, fundraising and compliance software, and I made friends with Mark Sullivan, who was running the Van, which in the early days, one of six or seven companies that did voter file. You mentioned earlier an asset to the New Hampshire Democratic Party is your voter list. What was your part in the kind of revolution where state parties adopt a uniform interface to the voter file in the state that all the candidates could use and subsequent uses of that data? Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: I think your choice of the term revolution, it doesn't even describe the change. It is uh, beyond a revolution. Um, The party in the the 70s, obviously, there was no – every candidate had to create their own voter file. You you had to go town by town in the state of New Hampshire, hand copy onto three-by-five cards, then look it up in the phone book, and then they throw it away the day after the election, and you start all over. The first four or five months of every campaign was building a card file. (laughs) which now you just hit a button and you have it so in the 80s we kept trying to create a statewide voter file um the problem was is that it cost money and we were so poor as a state party that we could sometimes build it up to be somewhat useful during the general election but we didn't have the money to keep it alive and so it, it would die And then two years later, we'd try to spend the money to to build it up as best we could. And we had competitors. So, you know, the the voter file needs use to keep it alive. And and if you've got three or four companies that have a better voter file than you as a state party, why would they go to your voter file and not just go to the one that has history and has all the other sort of stuff in there? So we started investing more and more in building it, and, and we were proud of what we finally were able to get to by the time uh, 2005 came around, and and then we decided to, to join the effort to do a national uh, voter file, and that also uh, changed because a campaign worker that worked in one state could then come to another state and it was the same sort of system, and and that that was easier than trying to retrain every single person every time. But having that information and then being able to um, create the co-op as the STC president that that joined all of the state party uh, voter files together uh, to make a uh, – use it as a fundraising uh, prospect, which has raised millions of dollars for the state parties in the eight years, I think, uh, that it's been alive. It's just – that was a – a uh, pretty revolutionary thing as well to kind of tell uh, the DNC, is like, okay, maybe you, you won't give all the money that we need, so we're going to find a source and we're going to do this. And it's worked out quite well uh, for the party. But the the ability to have these phenomenal voter files in every state uh, that uh, can be used by our candidates, I think, has, has been um quite instructive and I know the Republicans brag every couple of years about how they've got this new and better and whatnot and well, why aren't they winning more elections if that was really true. Um, you know we, we still received the majority of votes in every presidential election in the last you know 15, 16 years. So it's something that I'm quite proud of. I, I'm not a techie so I could never tell you exactly how it all works and how it is, but I know it's something good and that's good enough for me.
1: There are always competitors and new ideas about external uh, efforts to build different voter files or to build competing uh, interfaces. How do you view those? Did somebody rat me out?
0: (laughs) This was a hot topic at our very last uh, association meeting um, where I um, became quite outspoken when suddenly somebody suggested a um a different path than what we had been operating on and i just waited for them to say their piece and i may have asked some pointed questions that ruffled a few feathers but um there are uh, other organizations and other groups that have tried to do but our files need to be used and so uh, it is uh, important to the state parties that all of our candidates use our voter file, and it's important that enough other organizations have access to the voter file to help keep it alive as well. Our job is to win elections, uh, and um, if it means uh, that uh, we get sharp elbows to some of these other nonprofit or for profit organizations that have tried to create alternatives. I'm more than willing uh, to use them. Well, and, you know, there's obviously a, an effort by the DC folks, as there is with everything, you know, to try to take the power away from the state parties and, and have it all centralized. You know, if they had their druthers, the DNC, the DTRIP, and the DS would sit together in a little cave and run everything and own everything. But uh, that's a, a fight that I've been taking on for years and will till, uh, till I die.
1: You have spent time as part of the DNC. Um, Tell me about what you've learned from that and what you've done there. There's two DNCs.
0: There's the employees in the building. Then there's the 470 of us that are members across the country. Uh, The vast majority of the 400 plus members are, are heroes. I mean, they have done extraordinarily work. Uh, For the party, they're in it for the the best of reasons. And they're just, they're people I want to hang out with. I mean, they're just people that are really um, interesting and committed and really, you know, kind of person you'd want to bring in a battle with you. And then you have the employees that uh, rarely stay more than uh, a cycle, if they even make it a full cycle. The turnover is nonstop. And it's massive. I once talked to a person who had worked at the DNC for three years and did not realize that there was a Democratic National Committee. And this was not a low level staffer, was say, it was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I'm like, what are you committee? That, that, what do you think committee means? <laughs> you know, I just never paid attention to those people that gathered, you know, twice a year because um, they, they really felt they were the party. And there have been some really great uh, folks that have worked uh, for the DNC. There have been other people that just took it as a job, as a, a bridge to another job. But when I did run for DNC chair, I mean, one of the things that I was going to require is that every employee of the DNC spend at least one week operating out of a state party headquarters a year. Uh, they had to get out of Washington. And they, they could still do their job, but they had to be out with where the real work happens, and that's at the state party headquarters. I think that would be very beneficial for the several hundred employees of South
1: Capitol Street. One of the things that you're in the news for recently is the battle that comes up from time to time about the first in the nation primary status of your state. Can't help but ask about that. There is a change this year. It was kind of a fiasco with the Iowa caucus last time. Uh, the states are being asked to reapply for their status in order. I saw that you guys had put in your uh, bid there. What's the state of that uh, controversy? What's likely to come out and and what do you think is the right thing to do?
0: We're in an open period right now where states can send Uh, a letter uh, informing uh, the Rules and Bylaws Committee, or the DNC, uh, that they wish to be considered to be one of the four or five pre-window states, which we have done that. And there have been talk of up to nine or more states that wish to be candidates for one of those positions. There will be four regional um, hearings or public uh, intake sessions via Zoom that will be held in in the course of the next uh, month and a half. And then there will be presentations that will be made to the Rules and Bylaws Committee. Uh, They will then make their decision, considering all the factors that they have decided to look at. And uh, they will make a recommendation early to mid-July for the DNC for consideration in early September. So it has to go through the full operation of the ARP rules and bylaws Committee, better known as RBC, to the full members of the DNC and which for uh, adopted. So far in history, certainly in last uh, half century at least, the recommendation of the RBC is passed by the full DNC. I don't recall a single time where the, the RBC's recommendations were, were defeated.
1: Do you expect that uh, they will pick New Hampshire again and have that ratified, or what are you saying?
0: There are a number of criteria uh, that they wish to choose. One is, um, can the state pull together that primary or whatever that they may have? And we have more than proven that we know how to run a fair uh, and open primary where people are treated with respect and have the opportunity to really uh, get their message out in campaign. So, yes. One of the criteria is whether or not we're a swing state. I'm not sure there's a more swing state than New Hampshire. We're as about evenly divided as I can be. Just take a look at the 2017 vote victory of Maggie Hassan in, in 2016. We are d- evenly divided right up and down the middle. And uh, so doing well in New Hampshire and doing well in, in November is very important, as we all know, the lesson of, of 2,000 that if uh, Al Gore had won New Hampshire, which he lost by 7,000 votes, uh, he would have been uh, president. Florida would not have mattered, and we would not have had uh, the subsequent eight years of George W. Bush. The third is, uh, so we have you know the playing of the, the level playing field. Uh, is it a swing state? And how do we uh, treat and act? And it really is uh, an example of, I think, New Hampshire having some really unique opportunities that we provide our candidates by being so small. Um, that there's real retail. They're afraid, and, and, and rightly so. If you put a very large, five, six, seven, eight, 10, 20 million populated state, how do you do living room conversations? You know what's going to happen is the candidate is going to be completely focused on fundraising to get TV ads on to run in those high dollar expenditures. So having a small state. At the start, it's critically important to really get these candidates to be asked the hard questions in the living rooms and the backyards of, of, of the voters. And when it comes to diversity, we're certainly aware that that our population, you know, isn't the most diverse, which is why we very enthusiastically in 2006 supported the the inclusion of nevada and south carolina so the four early states collectively were very diverse and, and put together but i'll tell you i'm really proud of the diverse state party that we have the diversity that we have in our elected officials and our activists i believe that our delegation of the national Convention in, in 2020 was probably uh, of higher diverse uh, population than uh, any other state with such a number i mean more than half of our our delegates were a member of a diverse community. uh, if not even a little higher, I think. Um, So we make a huge effort to empower folks. Part of that is, you know, as, as we discussed, as a gay kid, there was no representation. Uh, I didn't see somebody that was like me in power. And I think that's really, really important that, you know, voters, kids, see people that either look like them, act like them, or are like them uh, in a position of influence. Representation is very important to me.
1: I wonder how you see the party. Just take in New Hampshire. Like the party is, it's not just the party organization that you run. It is a set of allies that are outside interest groups. Five twenty sevens. It's a it's a very complex progressive ecosystem in every state, a little different. How do you see the strength of that in your state?
0: That's part of my speech because I have to remind folks that I'm not the omnipresent, all powerful person. That it, it really takes a village to create a victory, uh, and that uh, all everybody that is participating in progressive politics in New Hampshire, even if they're in single issue organization is, is moving the ball forward and that everyone's effort should be respected. So in some States, uh, when the uh, post 2016, when these uh, groups kind of pop up from the grassroots, you know, they were like, Oh no, no, you need to be involved in the party. I was like, if they don't feel comfortable being in the party, but they're going door to door and they are writing letters to the editor and they're raising money and they're doing all, why, why not embrace them? The point is to win the election. It's not that, Oh, we have the most members or we have all the power. I, I don't believe that's what's important. What's important is that we enact the progressive agenda and whatever that takes. And if it means that, the party is just one of many that are part of uh, the ecosystem that that wins the elections. That's fine with me. I don't. I don't think the party needs to be the person that gets all of the credit or all of the blame. That it really should be uh, everybody working together. So whether you're a national progressive organization that you know s- supports infrastructure here in the state, or or it's a Grassroots grown. Um, I'm I'm for that. Uh, I I think it really has made a difference for us. And I'm very excited. There was not that organization back decades ago, and the fact that we have so many progressive organizations and, and issue-oriented organizations that that operate here in New Hampshire, I think that's a huge plus for us.
1: One of the things I want to ask you about is just the state of our politics generally. Like we we're in a time right now where the Republican Party is more troubling than it has been for a long time, at least to my view. And I think the view of a lot of people, the willingness to countenance Trump and disinformation and uh, fairly radical policies. And you know, the, the gamut of things that they're involved in right now. We're a very polarized country. How much does that affect you in New Hampshire? And what do you think we can do about the kind of the state of our politics right now to improve it?
0: It's heartbreaking. Um, I wonder if another 17-year-old Ray Buckley sitting in second grade hearing about the possibilities of politics, but being aware enough of how ugly politics is right now, would think, nah, I don't want to be involved in that. And That's just heartbreaking, because we have such a unique opportunity, not just in New Hampshire, but all across the country to be involved and to really make a difference. And if generations of young people are being convinced by this ugliness that it doesn't matter uh, or that it's not important, that, to me, fundamentally changes the story of America. And that just makes me so frustrated my problem is, is that I am old enough to have been part of the time where people worked together. They may have had strong oppositions, and they might have fought out in elections, but at the end of the day, they respected each other. You know, my first couple of terms in the legislature, we were part of the team. We might not agree but you try to reach compromise you, you still were friendly with them you still go have a drink with them or have dinner or you know you became friends with them and nowadays you don't even talk to the people of the other party and it gets so personal and so ugly and and so much of that is stuff that's online uh with, you know whether it's twitter or the facebook people say the most horrible things to people online that they would never say to their face you know, for those first number of years of Twitter, when so many people had these fake names and you could have multiple fake accounts, they were just so nasty and in a, such a cruel way to people. And there was nobody calling them out. And so it grew and it festered. And so every troubled mind in this country thinks that it's fun to just try to destroy another human being. And uh, I don't know what the solution of that, but thankfully, every time we've Hit this sort of trouble in America, something has happened that has caused it to correct itself. I was hoping that we were going to have a different America once Trump was defeated. I completely underestimated the destruction that had occurred to the establishment in the Republican Party, that the adults had been kicked out, and there are no responsible individuals within the Republican Party, locally, states country, that, that they really, the Trump folks and the people like Trump, have really wiped clean the Republican Party of, of any mature, thoughtful actor. That's what scares me, um, is there's nobody there to tell them to knock it off, you know, and to have so quickly swept you know, January 6th under the rug. Um, I mean, uh, that uh, that's just mind-bending for me, that they didn't accept responsibility and say, this is wrong, and we're going to make sure this never happens again. Instead of, oh, it was just a demonstration. Uh, that sort of behavior leads to much worse things, and we've learned that through history, and so I, I do have a great fear uh, of where we're headed, and in Till somebody that those individuals will listen to stands up and communicates, to them. they're not going to listen to us. There's no amount of conversation uh, at dinner or at a coffee. I'm never going to convince those individuals, you know, to change their ways. They are getting a thrill uh, out of what they're doing. They truly believe that the nonsense lies that they believe really are true. It's just so mind-boggling. And the eagerness for them to label everybody a pedophile is it's just mind-boggling to me. And the fact that they truly are people that believe it is even more – it's one thing to call somebody that, but to know that there are literally millions of Americans that go, okay, yeah, that person's a pedophile because this random person said it. We are in a a time in in our country, the only solution is to not give up, uh, to me. The solution is to uh, just keep plowing forward, uh, keep working, keep doing uh, what we're doing, and uh, believing that throughout humanity, at some point, this is righted, I don't know when or how it's going to be, but what we can't do is leave the stage and, and let this behavior control every aspect of this country. Um, But uh, as I start off saying, to me, I just think of those young Ray Buckleys that that are seeing this and would they choose to be part of this ugliness. Um, I think that's really a hard thing for them to to believe that this is good, uh, that you can do good. Because right now, anyone trying to do good just gets destroyed by the Republicans.
1: So it's been about Oh, more than 44, 45 years since you took that internship with the party. I get the sense that what keeps you in it is sort of what you were just saying. But what what's left for you to do? How long can you keep your shoulder to this wheel? I
0: know that, you know, you look at my resume and my record and it's like a Democratic Party. But to me, it's never really been about the Democratic Party It's about the results of what happens when we elect Democrats, because my motivating factor still is passing progressive laws and having a a government that that respects all people. And if for some reason the Democratic Party didn't believe that, I would be the first to go to a a different. uh, I see that as the vessel to do good, Um, and um, if you're not doing good. I'm not, I, I've never quite understood what the purpose of life is. If, if you're not leaving this world a better place than when you were born, then what did you accomplish? And that's just my philosophy. And, and so to me, as long as I can, I'm going to try to make positive change and give people opportunities, whether it's poor people like I grew up, I would love to have had a local education system where the guidance counselor said, Hey, Ray Buckley, you know, you're a smart kid. I know you're from a poor family, but let's figure out how to get you to college. But we didn't, our school system didn't have those sorts of individuals. And I would love our government to say, Hey, you're from a poor family. You can't afford to. Pay for college, but guess what? Because if you receive a degree, you're going to be uh, a plus for our country or our local community. That we're going to help you get that. Um, that's important. Or healthcare, uh, knowing that you know healthcare was uh, never possible to in my childhood or thing. So right. I mean, all of the different issues that, that are part of the progressive agenda, every single one of them somehow impacts. What I experienced in my childhood, or 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 since, and and so I I think that it is important to always keep your eye on the ball, and that's what it's about, and it's it's about trying to make sure that uh, everyone is is at the table. I've always loved the Barney Frank line that if if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Having been in enough of those meetings, it's true, and that's why I fight so hard to make sure everybody has has a chair. And and you know sometimes you have to share the seat with somebody because there's not enough chairs. So you scoot over and let somebody else sit on the other half. But you have to make sure that everyone is at that table.
1: Ray, it's really an honor to talk to you. Is there a question that I didn't ask you that I should have?
0: No, I mean, you, you did ask, and I didn't quite answer about, you know, when do I feel I hit the goal? New Hampshire is transforming into a blue state very slowly. I would like New Hampshire to be considered... A uh, traditional eastern region, democratic state, where Republicans will get elected every once in a while if, if, due to some circumstances. But all things being even, uh, the Democrats, you know, held the congressional delegation, elected a Democratic governor, was carried by the presidential nominee, had the majorities in the legislature, and was really passing progressive. We've had the majority uh, four out of the uh, in the Ho- New Hampshire House four out of the last eight uh, terms. Uh, well, I served there for 18 years and never once served in the majority. But the fact that it's four out of eight means that there's a lot of turnover. It's going back and forth. So we're not able to create a long-lasting um, legacy uh, of change for the state while it's flipping back and forth, back and forth, because you, you pass something, it gets repealed. You repeal something, you get passed again. And so it's this back and forth. So I would love to have a, a consistent uh, progressive majority where we're able to uh, really address some of the long-term uh, issues that impact the people of New Hampshire.
1: That makes sense. Well, great to talk to you. Anything else you want to say?
0: No, thank you. I hope that people will decide not to walk away, uh, to dig in deeper, to fight on. And it really does make a difference and encourage young people to be involved. Maybe they'll give up their entire life to be in the fight as well.
1: I hope they do. I think it's a a great career that you have and a great example from what I can tell, a life well lived. So appreciate that. Thank you. That was Ray Buckley. Ray is at nhdp.org.